out, I'd ask everybody else to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I know the bulletin says uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're actually going to read uh, verses 8 through 24, but give special attention uh, to verse 15, which is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or in other words, the first gospel. And in this series, we're working through the first 11 chapters of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Um, And our goal, our hope, is to move past our familiarity with the stories of the Bible. Uh, So whether you grew up in church or whether you didn't, you're familiar with the story of of Adam and Eve, likely maybe Cain and Abel, Noah and the ark, and so on. But we want to move past familiarity with those stories to seeing and engaging with the one story that the Bible is telling from beginning to end. It's the story that makes sense of the world and our lives and our longings as they are. It's the story of a good God who created out of nothing a good world, a good universe, and and into that world He made people in His image. And He gave to those good people everything in this good world for their enjoyment and for His glory. It's a story of how this good God loved the good people that He had made and lavished His gifts on them. He gave them a good pattern of work and rest, a pattern for life that He built into the very rhythm of creation. He gave them a good personhood of worth and dignity and beauty in body and soul. He gave them a good place, a paradise, where every need they could possibly have was met with perfect provision. He gave them a good promise that if they loved Him and believed Him and obeyed Him, that they would live forever with Him in that paradise. And He gave them a good partnership, a human relationship in which husband and wife could be both fully known and fully loved. A relationship in which there was no barrier between either the people and God or the people and one another. And what we saw last week in Genesis chapter 3 is it's the story of how it all went wrong. How the serpent in sin launched an attack on God. An attack that denied God's goodness. Denied God's command, denied God's credibility, denied God's character. How the serpent and sin launched an attack on God by deceiving His people. Using the the look good and the taste good and the feel good bait of sin and hiding the hook of utter destruction that it would bring. And distorting God's good gifts, which are now burdened by the corruption of sin and the shadow of death. The truth is, this story tells us that we had it all. And that in our rebellion, we lost it all. This story makes sense of the world as it is. Sin corrupts everything good. It ruins everything good. And that's why every human attempt to create a better world than the one that we experience utterly fails. Whether it's a political system or an economic system, whether it's personal or community attempts at creating a utopia, time after time after time throughout human history, even if they've been met with limited success, every human attempt to recreate the world that we all long for has utterly failed. Amen? This story, 
make sense of the world. It makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of our longings as they are. We see the disconnect between our longings and our experience. We see our own self-sabotage and we know there must be more. All of us, every human being on the planet knows there must be more than what we experience. Sin always works in the same denying, deceiving, distorting way in our lives. And it always alienates us from the only source of good. And it never changes. The good news for sinners is that the good God that created the world never changes either. And He continues to demonstrate His goodness even to rebels like Adam and Eve, even to rebels like you and like me. This is our reason for real hope in this life and in the age to come. Our God is good. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 3, and I'd ask you if you're able to stand in honor of God's Word. We're going to read verses 8 through 24. Genesis 3. This is after Adam and Eve have chosen to go their own way, rather than to obey the Lord's good promise and command to them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I, have not of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's ask for his help this morning. O oh Lord, this morning this word that you have inspired is meant for your people. 
And we need your help to understand it. We need your help to believe it. And we need your help to apply it. So please come and do, Holy Spirit, what only you can do. And speak powerfully to your people for our transformation and for your glory. We pray these things humbly and expectantly. Amen. You may be seated. There's an artist whose music I have recently gotten into. She's a North Carolina artist. She lives in Raleigh. Her name is Jess Ray, J-E-S-S-R-A-Y. I highly uh, recommend her music to you as her voice is excellent. The music itself is beautiful and it is full of gospel truth. But as I've been listening to her music, there's one song that uh, basically wrecks me emotionally every time I hear it. And I wanted to share the lyrics of it with you. It's called Runaway. I can see it in your eyes. You're going to run. You're going to run. I can hear it in the way that you speak to me that you're going to leave. And as you slip away, I will say. As you pack your things, I will sing. Even if you run away from me, over the mountains, through the valleys, I will not rest, but search east and west to bring you back with me. Even if you sail away from me across the oceans and the seas, I will move again like the mighty wind to bring you back with me. I'm going to move again like the mighty wind to blow you back with me. I have seen this all before. It is all too familiar. But you will never see the bottom of my storehouses of love. So as you use the night to make your flight... No choice that you will make or path that you will take will change my mind. Even if one day you decide you will find somewhere else to hide, I will walk your way and call your name and wait for your reply. Even if you make up your mind you don't want to be by my side, I will leave behind the 99, oh, that you'd be mine. I will leave behind the 99, oh, that you'd be mine. Even if you stomp and scream and huff, tell me that I'm not good enough. I'll take every swing and every blow until you know my love. Even if you beat upon my chest, tell me that you don't understand. I will love you and teach you to love me again. I'm going to love you and teach you to love me again. That song is a powerful picture of who we are and who we have been since Genesis chapter 3. It's a powerful picture of who our God was and is and always will be. We are the runners and the rebels. We are those who reject and resist God's love and goodness. But our God who created everything, He is good and He loves us and He will not change His mind. What we see in this chapter and in all the rest of the chapters of the Bible, is that our God is tenaciously committed to us, regardless of how we treat Him. And He will never stop demonstrating His goodness to us. I want you to hear that again. Sinner. Our God is tenaciously committed to us, regardless of how we treat Him. And he will never stop demonstrating his goodness to us. And we see that in the aftermath of humanity's rebellion against God here in Genesis chapter 3. And we see it 
in at least three ways. The first, the first way we see is this. In the midst of our rebellion, God pursues us. In the midst of our rebellion, not when we turn back to him, not when we have it all together, not when we're responsive, but in the midst of our rebellion, God pursues us. One of our four children is a runner. And by that, I don't mean that she gets out and runs miles. Um, What I mean is that when uh, she knows that she has done something wrong, uh, when she knows that she's about to be in trouble, she takes off. And she goes to one of basically three or four uh, places in the house, and she gets as small as she can in that place to hide from us. I'm not going to name names, by the way. And I'm not sure what it really accomplishes because we know where to look. And as a parent who loves our child, it's our job to pursue. But it still happens a good percentage of the time. And the truth is, with with this particular child and with me, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That our very first parents, when they realized what they had done, their instinct was to do what? To run and to hide from God. And of course, that was a a foolish instinct. With my child, at least there's a chance that she's going to pick a place to hide that I won't find her, at least for a little while. But Adam and Eve knew that God knew and saw everything. But look how gentle and gracious God is to them. God doesn't tap his foot and fold his arms and say, Adam, stop. Come out and deal with the consequences of what you have done. Instead, God gives an invitation for Adam to respond voluntarily. He says, even though God knows absolutely where Adam is hiding in this moment, he says, where are you? And again, he doesn't tap his foot. He doesn't say, Adam, I can see you. Instead, he gives an invitation for Adam to respond voluntarily, where are you? And Adam, apparently realizing the futility of hiding, responds to God with a foolish answer. It's foolish on two levels. It's foolish because one, Adam says, I was naked, so I hid. Uh, It's foolish because, well, God made Adam and he made him naked, so dude, he's seen you naked. There's no reason to hide. It's also foolish because what Adam does in saying that he is naked is he confirms exactly what God already knows. That Adam has rebelled and sinned against God and rejected his word. Adam says, I was naked, so I hid. But God doesn't roll his eyes and let Adam really have it. He continues to demonstrate love and patience. He says again, who told you that you were naked? And he gives him an opportunity to confess. Have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that I told you not to eat from? When Adam then tries to shift the blame to his wife Eve, God does not put him on blast for his passivity in the exchange with Eve or for his cowardice in blaming Eve. Instead, in grace, he turns to Eve and gives her a chance to respond. What is this that you have done? In the midst of our rebellion, 
God pursues us tenaciously, lovingly, patiently. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Even when we reject Him and rebel against Him, when we run from Him in our sin and in our shame, He comes for us and He extends grace to us again and again and again. The fact that you are here this morning is evidence of God's personal pursuit of you. You're not here because of some fluke or accident. You're not here merely because you have cultivated a habit of coming to worship on Sunday in your lives. You are here this morning because our sovereign God means to demonstrate His love and His goodness to you again. He has something to say to you today. He has something to do in you. And He is graciously calling out to you once again, where are you? And I would ask you, how... how Have you been running away from Him? Has it been through open rebellion of knowingly doing what He has commanded you not to do? Has it been through self-righteousness of trying to earn God's favor by being a good person and checking off the right boxes? Has it been through believing the lies of the serpent that God is done with you and the shame that makes you want to run from His presence? Has it been through fear of what God might ask you to do or what he might ask you to give up if you answer his call? All of us, like our first parents, tend to be runners. The good news for runners and for rebels is that no matter where we go, no matter where we hide, we can't get away. Like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, our God pursues us. And your assignment for today as you leave this place is to take some time today to think about what are some specific ways that you have tried to run away from God? And what are the specific ways in which he has pursued you to bring you back? God lovingly pursues us, even in the midst of our rebellion. And what we see here, secondly, is that in the midst of our rebellion, God provides for us. Not only does He pursue us, He also provides for us. And we see that in verses 16 through 24. You know, sin has natural and legal consequences. And we see the natural consequences of of sin in the shame and the sorrow that Adam and Eve feel immediately after they sin. It says they ate the fruit, their eyes were open, and immediately they realized that they are naked and they felt shame. God had not come to convict them of their sin or to condemn them for it. Just on their own, they immediately felt the natural consequences of having disobeyed God, which was shame and sorrow. We experience the natural consequences of sin when we worship things that are not God, and then they fail us and prove to us that our worship of them they were not worthy of. When we feel the disconnect between our profession of what we believe about God and the way that we actually live, when we use His name in vain. When we fail to keep the Sabbath, then we find ourselves both physically and spiritually exhausted. When we feel the sting of our parents' disappointment when we fail to honor them. When we harbor anger and resentment against others in our hearts and then find ourselves lonely and alienated from people and relationship. When our lust leaves us feeling so dirty and ashamed and unworthy of love. 
When we take what is not ours and we find that it was not worth it. When our lives are exposed, when our lies are exposed by the truth because they always are. When we're perpetually dissatisfied because we desire what others have. The natural consequences of our sin are simply reaping what we sow. But sin doesn't only have natural consequences, it also has legal consequences. The God who is, the God who created everything, our God is a God of justice. He established his covenant with Adam and Eve, that good promise that if they believed him, if they loved him and obeyed him, that they would live for, with him forever. But the legal consequence of, of their turning away from him, of their rebelling against him, would be physical and spiritual death. There are just consequences for rebellion and natural consequences as well. And we see those consequences in God's announcement of the curse, his announcement of judgment on the man and on the woman and on the serpent and on the earth. But more importantly and beautifully here than consequences, we also see God make good provision for his people right with those consequences. As God is announcing judgment on his people, he also announces his grace and his provision. God would have been perfectly just to have just dropped the full weight of the consequences of what Adam and Eve did on them and on all the humans that would come after them and just withdrawn and let them receive what they truly deserved. But he didn't. Instead, we see God lovingly give mercy and provision alongside of justice. Justice. In verse 16, God promises to Eve that because of what she has done, that childbirth is now going to be painful. And yet, we see God's provision in that He preserves and provides still the good gift of children and family. Ultimately, He promises in verse 15 that that the Redeemer who is to come is going to be born of a woman. He's going to go through, um, by being born, this process of painful childbirth for his mother and Jesus when he was grown up he said this in John chapter 16 when a woman is giving birth she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she has delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world it's this reality that God, yes, he gives justice in the form of painful childbirth, but also gives joy in persisting to allow us the, the privilege and the gift of children and family through it. Verse 17 and 19, justice. The curse is going to make work difficult and frustrating. And yet God provides food from the cursed ground to nourish our bodies and to sustain life, plants and even bread. Even though work is going to be hard, God preserves, even in His judgment, our capacity to to bear fruit in our work and to enjoy the fruits of our labor and to appreciate a job well done. The curse is going to make marriage and other relationships with people difficult, but in His goodness and love, God preserves our capacity for relationship and continues to provide the one flesh union that He designed in marriage. God knows it is not good for us to be alone, so He provides marriage and other relationships for human beings, even with the challenges that sin brings to those relationships. Verse 21, I just want to read it. Just see God's loving provision. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and clothed them. Now, the, legal, or the, the natural consequence of their sin was this shame that they were naked. God made them naked, and, and actually in their original state, when everything was good, it says that Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no shame. Shame was a consequence of their rebellion against God, and yet God comes to them in their rebellion, in their shame, and he provides for them there. He even covers the results of their sin. They had these inadequate clothes that they had uh, rudimentarily put together to cover themselves of fig leaves. And God removes their inadequate clothing and he gives them real garments made of animal skins to cover them and to cover their shame. And I would just say we're very much like Adam and Eve here. We, um, when we sin, when we feel the shame that's associated with our sin, whether we experience the natural or legal consequences of our sins, we tend to try to cover up, don't we? Before God, we, kinda, we get whatever fig leaves we can before God and others, and we just kind of cover ourselves up. But that covering is always inadequate. We are never good at covering our sin and covering our shame. And so what does God do? In loving kindness, He meets us with provision. He takes away our inadequate coverings, and He gives us a real covering. He gives us the covering of Christ's righteousness. In verses 19, 22 through 24... We see that the big legal consequence of sin is death, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And in order to enforce that just consequence, God expels Adam and Eve from paradise and from access to the tree of life. And on its face, that doesn't seem like grace and provision, but it most certainly is. Imagine what would have happened if Adam and Eve had been able to take from and eat of the tree of life in their fallen and broken and shameful state. They would live forever with shame, with brokenness, with sin, with suffering, and with alienation from God. See, the truth is, the way that our lives are now, the way that the world is now, none of us really wants to live forever in these conditions. I used to eat breakfast with a couple of guys who were officers in the church where I was the, the director of student ministry. And uh, one of those guys' name was, was Glenn, and his dad was advancing in age, and he was declining in health. And so we would often pray for Glenn's dad. And Glenn made the comment multiple times that all his life growing up, his dad uh, would pray over the, their meals as a family. And one of the things that he always prayed for was long life. And as his dad advanced in age and declined in health, Glenn said, he doesn't pray for that anymore. In God's gracious and good and loving provision, He does not allow us to live forever in the broken state and the broken world that sin brought. What the catechism that we just read a little while ago calls misery. Instead, he makes provision for us to be restored and resurrected. He triumphs over death through death. And we see that promised in, in Genesis 3.15. The last way that we see God continue to demonstrate his goodness is that in the midst of our rebellion, God promises us redemption. In the midst of our rebellion, God pursues us and he provides for us and he promises us redemption. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in England, said this, This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse indeed with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. 
Is it not remarkable that this great gospel promise should have been delivered so soon after the transgression? As yet, no sentence had been pronounced upon either either of the two human offenders, but the promise was given under the form of a sentence pronounced on the serpent. Not yet had the woman been condemned to painful travail, or the man to exhausting labor, or even the soil to the curse of thorn and thistle. Truly, mercy triumphs over judgment. Before the Lord had said, dust you are, and to dust you shall return, he was pleased to say that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Let us rejoice then at the swift mercy of God, which in the early watches of the night of sin came with comforting words to us. God comes in, takes up the quarrel personally, and causes the serpent to be disgraced on the very battlefield upon which he gained a temporary success. He tells the dragon that he will undertake to deal with him. This quarrel shall not be between serpent and man, but between God and the serpent. And God promises that there shall rise in fullness of time a champion who, though he suffers, shall smite in a vital part the power of evil and bruise the serpent's head. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There are two sides to this promise, of course. There are the the consequences for the natural side. Satan used a vehicle to tempt Adam and Eve, and that was a serpent. And this explains the, the natural, contentious relationship between human beings and snakes. But of course, the much more significant reality here is God's promise in verse 15 that He will deliver His people and His creation through the offspring of the woman. One day, a human being would be born who would rescue humanity and rescue creation from our rebellion and its consequences, both natural and legal. And this rescue mission would be costly. The promise says that the Redeemer's heel would be struck that he would taste the consequences of sin and for sinners, that he would receive to himself the venom that they had earned, that he would surely die. And that in what seemed like another victory for the evil one, but that it would be through his suffering and through his death, and through his resurrection, that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and deliver all of his sisters and brothers. The Apostle Paul describes his victory and ours in this way in Colossians chapter 2. In him, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. This He set aside. He disarmed the demonic 
rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him. In Him. In whom? What's His name? Come on, church. What is the name of the only Redeemer of God's people? Amen. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. The triumphs of His grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Hear Him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ear, tis life and health and peace. My gracious Master and my God, Assist me to proclaim to all the earth abroad the glories and honors of your name. This story of a good God and a good world and good people who had it all and lost it all is the story that makes sense of our lives and the world and our longings. And this is why we know in this broken world and in our broken lives there is real hope. This story is true. And today we can find hope. We can rejoice in hope. And we can share hope with others that in the midst of our rebellion, God never stops demonstrating His goodness and His loving kindness to us. He pursues us. He provides for us. And He promises forgiveness and redemption and adoption and eternal life to all who find hope in Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank You that Your Word is true. We thank You that this story is not merely a story. This is history. That our first parents rebelled and we end them. But that Christ came and lived and died and rose again and we end Him. And so Lord, I pray that we today would see Jesus afresh that we would worship Him as we ought, that we would seek Him with all of our hearts and all of our lives. And oh Lord, would You show us again in Him, would You assure us again in Him that You will never stop demonstrating Your goodness to us in Him, for You have done it all. It is finished. Lord, I pray today that we would be buoyed and encouraged and renewed and emboldened by the good news that you love us, that you are committed to us, and that you will never stop. You will never change your mind. And all the evidence we will ever need is in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, pray, I ask that you would please stand, and we're going to respond to God's word in song.